Hello, welcome. Good to have you. This is the Pocket Contemplative. I'm Dave Smelser. The contemplatives, going back to a forceful teaching from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, have strong words about how to respond to escalating cultural and geopolitical divisions, along with how to respond to bad behavior specifically directed your way. Their advice famously has transformed people like Nelson Mandela, and I suppose by extension South Africa itself to some degree, and the Dalai Lama, and then way down that list, I suppose, maybe even people like you and me. It's Jesus' command to respond to hostility and hurt and even persecution with what the mystics call loving kindness, as if that's an oddly powerful way to fight back, I suppose, if fighting back is the right term. So I'll fill you in on the big idea here, and then I'll give you some neuroscience to ponder about how this practice was also designed to reshape your brain along the way in a way I think you'll like. I'll give you a shortcut, if there even are shortcuts for such a thing, along these lines that I've been liking a lot. We'll take a pass at how this is discussed in a current hit movie. And then I'll offer a brief tour through some thoughts from perhaps our most popular teacher on the subject, a woman named Sharon Salzberg. I hope you'll be encouraged by it as I am. Before we get started, let me encourage you to check out our parent website at journey-on.net, where you can discover interesting materials like five-minute videos to teach you the basics that we're going to talk about here, along with offering you a look at live online small groups that people from all over are enjoying as they connect with new friends who also want to grow in the spirituality that we talk about here. Again, that's all at journey-on.net. Okay, let's get rolling with loving kindness right now. A few episodes back, I talked about the powerful Jesuit contemplative practice called the examine, in which, as a contemplative exercise, you consider what's brought you life, they call this your consolation, during the last day or so, and what's taken life away from you. They call this your desolation. And we talked a bit about what to do with that information. A while back, as I was doing an examine one day, I realized that that day my consolation had been my own little bubble of my family and friends and home, which seemed super pleasant at the moment. And my desolation had been everything else, had been the wider world outside of that bubble, you know, Ukraine and climate change, which is leaving my state in unrelenting drought, and the serious threats within our political system, and on and on. I remember inwardly cataloging that as if my inner bubble was pleasant, but the world outside it seemed like a hellscape. I was aware that contemplatives had a strong suggestion for me in such a world, which was that I give more serious attention to this meditative practice often called loving kindness, which is in the Christian tradition gets centered around Jesus's command in the Sermon on the Mount to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So again, fairly serious, that if we want to be children of our Father in heaven, we need to love enemies and pray for people who persecute us. Pray for the malefactors out there. Love them. I don't know how often I do that. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you keep that in mind more than I do. So when we're told, why are we supposed to do that? It's because, well, we should be like God, because God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And part of me can think in times where I'm under strain or I look at the wider world and I see evildoers or people I regard as evildoers, I'll think maybe it'd be good if God withheld the rain from a few people, which would help the rest of us out. But God is not that way and encourages us that if we want to um, be children of that God, we need to learn how to be like that. So there you have it. The idea seems to be that this is the most powerful choice in a hostile and divided world, that overtly practicing the discipline of cultivating our own loving heart in such a world is, as Jesus teaches, a powerful move. 
in that spirit, I find myself thinking about this hot indie movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Maybe you've seen it. It's about a Chinese immigrant family having tax troubles, only to find that they're actually living in a multiverse that's in a cosmic war. IMDb, the international movie database, the kind of big kahuna place to find information on movies, hosts an ongoing list of the top 250 movies of all time, as voted on by their readers. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once currently ranks number 55 all time. So there you go. Anyway, in this cosmic war, there's a key moment when one character, who's learned that they actually have astounding martial arts skills, notices that another character, who seems weak, has their own superpower, which is kindness, even when the world around them is resolutely hostile to them. It reminded me of the Dalai Lama's standard answer when asked if he has any religion, since, of course, as you know, Buddhism is famously atheistic. His answer is, my religion is kindness. And he makes a compelling case that that's so, even as he fights for justice for the Tibetan people. Anyway, I was aware that one contemplative approach to Jesus' command in a hostile world to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you was to take a moment in one's meditation practice for praying for, or at least overtly wishing well towards, if you're in an atheistic space, first yourself, then people you love, then people you feel neutral towards, then people you have mixed feelings about, then your enemies, then all people, then all beings. So it's kind of a lot if you take that slowly, starting with yourself, then people you love, then people you feel neutral towards, then people you have mixed feelings about, then your enemies, then all people and all beings. Although it's noteworthy that we start off by figuring out what do we kind of wish for ourselves as a starting point. Jesus, of course, says love our neighbors as ourselves, meaning if we figure out how we, what's the love we want, that's what we do. And that seems to be the spirit in which this starts. What is it that we want? And so the standard advice for people who teach on loving kindness is that in the absence of naming specifics that are quirky to you, and I'm going to give you some that are quirky to me in just a minute, the more generic things they encourage us to start with are four, four things. Safety, happiness, health, and ease. That every human being on earth wants safety, happiness, health, and ease, that things would go okay in their lives. So their advice would be start with yourself and pray something like, God, may I be safe, happy, healthy, and at ease, and then extend that prayer through the categories I mentioned until you're praying for all beings. And their point is, as we do it, good things happen in a way I'm going to tell you in just a minute. Or you can adapt those descriptors, like what is it that you want for yourself, that you want prayed into you, and then prayed into others, into anything you want to say. It's up to you. And so for what it's worth, the categories I have settled on as I pray for my family and for myself, et cetera, are these. God may so-and-so be happy. That's my first because so right along with the standard advice, I want to be happy and I think they do too. May so-and-so be happy, blessed. Now, blessed might be a more religious kind of sounding thing than you're into, in which case don't use it. But for me, I don't know, somehow it captures something. I want people to feel like God is on their side, doing good stuff for them. Happy, blessed, forward moving is my third. It might just be that I have five kids and I want them to be moving forward in their lives. So I might be biased that direction, but I, I want to be moving forward in my life too. I want fresh opportunities to come my way. So that's my third. Happy, blessed, forward moving. My fourth is alive in Jesus. Again, perhaps a more religious term than you are comfortable with and then you feel like you need. Fine, don't use it. But for me, I don't know. I seem to want that and it's a little different than blessed. It's not just that I want to feel God's on my side. It's that I want to feel kind of I'm coming to life in God. I'm seeing more of who God is in the world. That's what I want for myself. So I pray for others too and safe. So my standard prayer, God may so-and-so be happy, blessed, forward-moving, alive in Jesus and safe. I do power walks around my neighborhood most days, and I will often listen as I go to university lectures. 
And I found a fair amount of ones that look at things like contemplative practice and brain chemistry or psychiatric research or other things related to things we talk about here. And I learned in one of those lectures that there, of course, have been a fair amount of studies about whether we can chart brain benefits through regular contemplative practice. And you'll be shocked to learn the answer is yes, a ton of brain benefits. So there you go. But one thing that was interesting, uh, uh, one lecture compared the brain benefits from two types of meditation, from concentration meditation, which is basically just whatever we mean when we use the word meditation. It means you follow your breathing as thoughts come. As you're following your breathing, you gently let them go and return to your breathing in a kind way. Concentration meditation. The concentration is just on an object like breathing. And compared that, the kind of broadest category of meditation, to loving kindness meditation, which is just what we said, that you start off, you have a list of things you're going to pray for, for yourself, for people you love, for people you're neutral towards, towards people you feel mixed about, towards enemies, towards all beings. That's loving kindness meditation. And I presumed, if you're looking at benefits of concentration meditation to that, that concentration meditation would win hands down. Again, it's the dominant practice that's been taught worldwide since time began. But I was wrong. It was the reverse. Yes, concentration meditation does offer tons of benefits, so keep doing it. But the consistent winner, if you had to choose just one, was a surprisingly loving-kindness meditation. The researchers thought this was because that doing that, meditating, marinating in the sort of well wishes in prayer to all beings flooded you with love and connection in the brain, which the brain really grooves on. It floods it with oxytocin, the connecting neurotransmitter. And so it has all sorts of healthy brain benefits as we do it. Isn't that interesting? So I'll just say, I've been working this for quite some time, and I found an intriguing shortcut for slackers like me. So I, you should do the whole thing. Go for it. The Dalai Lama, we're told, does in his five hours of meditation a day. An hour of it is just loving-kindness meditation, particularly towards the Chinese hardliners who are oppressing the Tibetan people, of which the Dalai Lama is the head. So people who are being actively evil towards them, he does an hour of loving-kindness meditation every day, which specifically focuses on them. And so it leads him to be able to famously to call them my friends, the enemy, and to say my religion is kindness, despite all the oppression he's under. So there you go. Um, I, though, have a slacker way to do this. Um, so I will start by envisioning my family members one by one as if I'm lifting them up to God, as if they're in like a shallow basket I'm offering to God. I read once that this isn't far from how Aaron, Moses's brother and the high priest during the Exodus, would pray for the people of Israel, which he was responsible to pray for as the high priest. So he would go into this tent of meeting that was going with them where God's presence was, you know, strong. And Aaron would bring a breastplate, which I believe was made of gold, with different gems in it that were, there were 12 of them. They represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And he would just hold the breastplate up over his head to God as if letting God remember each of the gems, which is each of the tribes, one by one, and then he would leave. And this um, thing I read, maybe I heard this taught by some famous pastor, I'm trying to remember how I first heard this, suggested that if you're on the go— that's a great way to pray for loved ones, you know, is just remember them before God, hold them up, like imagine them being held up to God and let God bathe them with good stuff. And so I'd done this. I'm again, five kids, got a lot of people to pray for. I'm often on the go, but I want to pray for them. This breastplate idea. So I've taken that and adapted it to loving kindness meditation somewhat. So again, I will hold up, you know, my oldest son in the shallow basket in my mind's eye to God, and I will pray, may my oldest son be happy, blessed, forward-moving, alive in Jesus, and safe. And I'll just sit there with a minute as if I'm kind of 
with my son, being bathed in the goodness of God around those prayers. And then I'll go on to my other kids, et cetera, and then to whoever else I want to pray for. But by the end, I have a, a final basket, which has been intriguing and good on these terms. My last shallow basket is of this group of people, a whole bunch of people. And in that basket, it'll say, here I'm holding up everyone who's ever hurt me and all of my cultural and geopolitical enemies. Everyone who's ever hurt me. Most of us in life have people that can, when we think about them, it feels like an, oh man, that person hurt me. I have some people like that. So everybody who's ever hurt me and all of my cultural and geopolitical enemies, may they be happy, blessed, forward moving, alive in Jesus and safe. And it's been surprising. So as I've done that, I've liked that practice. That's been, that's been a winner. And um, I often feel like, I think it's God in my view, will bring somebody specific to mind. I'll just say that phrase, all my cultural enemies, excuse me, everyone who's ever hurt me, my cultural and geopolitical enemies. And I'll think of some specific person who's hurt me. And I'll think, oh man, think of that person, it's kind of tough. And, um, and then I'll realize oh, I'm just gonna pray for them. May they be happy, blessed, forward moving, alive in Jesus and safe. And I'll hold them up before God or some geopolitical evildoer will come to mind in particular, and I'll pray it for them. And I'll talk about how we can pray such a thing without feeling like we're doing bad to the world, because obviously if they're evildoers, maybe we should just be cursing them and praying they die or some such thing, or building a wall against them or whatever. But that's not where the contemplatives tend to go. They start from a very different place, as does the Dalai Lama and Nelson Mandela and others. Anyway, I'll do that, and I feel like God will often highlight various people, and I'll stick with them, and they rotate. It's not always the same people. And I will bless them in that way, and then I'll move on. That's kind of my standard loving-kindness practice, which I do pretty much every day. Now, this has helped me understand Jesus' point, that God sends rain on the just and the unjust. He doesn't discriminate. So I used to feel like the only way I could pray for evildoers or people who hurt me, etc., was not to pray for them the same things I'd pray for myself and those I love, goodness knows, but instead would be to pray that those people would repent of their evils or of the ways they were displeasing to me. What I found in loving kindness practice is that the things I want for myself seem on point for them as well, like alive in Jesus. That seems like a helpful thing, even for the worst of the bad people in my basket, that it doesn't hurt me if they come alive to Jesus. This practice encourages us to face whether we think that one's loving heart can, in fact, be an actual superpower or not in the spirit of everything, everywhere, all at once, or of the Dalai Lama or Nelson Mandela or whomever. And some of those folks do go mystical on this point, people who teach about this, talking about their belief that loving kindness actually sends out like a vibration both into the earth and perhaps to the people being um, prayed for or meditated on at that moment. Now, of course, all Christians might totally agree with that, with a tweak that that vibration they talk about might better be called God answering our prayer on behalf of the person we're praying for as if that's a good thing. A couple years back, a friend of mine introduced me to a friend of his, and I spent about an hour with this famous surgeon and researcher who, for his research, got funded by the Dalai Lama at this elite university to look at the neuroscience both of kindness and meditation. And one noteworthy thing about my conversation with this man was his almost, I don't know if I could put it this way, messianic belief in loving kindness. And in some large-scale projects he was involved in with national leaders from around the world, because he's a big shot, to engender whole populations experiencing loving kindness as a way of keeping the world from blowing itself up. Interesting conversation, as you would guess. So the big kahuna book on this, so far as I'm aware at least, at least in America, is by the Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg, 
and it's called Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. I, she's written some very successful books. I suspect that might be the one she's best known for. And let me just give you a few thoughts from her, a few comments from me, and we'll call it a day. So she writes, what unites us all as human beings is an urge for happiness. That's what we have in common. Which at heart is a yearning for union, for overcoming our feelings of separateness. We want to feel our identity with something larger than our small selves. Do you believe that? I mean, I wonder about that, right? Maybe what we most want is not being feeling separate. And she feels like loving kindness meditation is the road to that thing which we so crave. She says, loving kindness is the ability to embrace all parts of ourselves, as well as all parts of the world. And again, that's union rather than separation. Attachment, she says, to what we think we must have in order to be happy can contract our lives. Attachment is driven by acquisitiveness. We have material objects, but we also have people. We say, I have a husband. I have a friend. I have children. The same spirit of acquisition applies in relation to information or belief systems. I have views and opinions that define me. Thus, she says, our world gets split into divergent camps defined by nationalism, ethnicity, and fundamentalism. True happiness can't be found in some thing or some person because everything changes and that level of happiness is bound to be temporary, she writes. More enduring is the possibility of this loving heart we're trying to cultivate and experiencing that in any circumstance. She quotes the Buddha who says, hatred can never cease by hatred. Hatred can only cease by love. This is an eternal law. So I think back to everything, everywhere, all at once. That's the premise, right? There's this cosmic war. People are fighting and killing each other, et cetera. And one of our heroes discovers they didn't know they have the ability to be an excellent fighter in that war, whacking people and throwing people around and and I'm sure killing some people. But somebody else, their only superpower is kindness. And the question in the movie posits is, is kindness valuable under those circumstances? And its answer is, you betcha. It's absolutely valuable. It is, in the end, the only superpower. So they would agree with the Buddha. And again, just a reminder, Jesus commands us, if we have enemies, not to whack them around, at least as a first instinct. I'm not saying there's no place for for that. But as a first instinct, he is commanding us to pray, uh, to pray for them to love them because God shows them the same good stuff he shows us good people equally. God is not withholding and neither should we. Salzburg tells um, a story, uh, it is a metaphor, I'm sure, but which is charming about being, I think, at a retreat center, if I'm remembering, and there was this sort of very scary dog who seemed like kind of a werewolf as she presents this dog named Max. And Max, I guess, is on a leash, but sometimes it, there was risk that he was off the leash and, and would he kill people. Just, and she had to walk by Max every day, and she was scared of this moment. And she says, Max was a huge dog. He looked like a cross between a Doberman pincher and a mountain lion. I started hearing reports that Max had gotten agitated and aggressive, snarling at people and threatening to attack them. And then on this one day, she says, finally, I arrived. And Max stood up and I stopped. We looked at each other. And then I blurted out the first thing that came to mind. Max, Maxine is my middle name. People used to call me Max, too, you know? We looked at each other for a few moments more. Then Max sat down again, and I walked on. From that point on, I saw that love was a choice for me in many different situations. I developed a relationship to Max, a feeling of connection. He seemed like someone I knew, someone who might be in a bad state, who might even lose control and actually try to hurt me, but someone who was nonetheless a friend. I did not at all stop being careful, but Max ceased to be a terrible alien creature. So, a picture of something. 
She points out that breathing is about the sort of exchange that in one sense she feels like our whole beings want beyond just breathing. But she says, with each breath, we exchange carbon dioxide from within us for oxygen that's outside of us. Normally, we take this process for granted. But this exchange, this connection that's going on every moment is actually the experience of being alive. We don't live as isolated fragments, completely separate. We're parts of a great, dynamic, mutable whole. And breathing is a part of that. And loving-kindness meditation is a, is a picture of breathing in that respect. She says the separation impoverishes the spirit. If we seek only to protect ourselves, we can't genuinely connect with others. And this whole idea of being separate also shows itself as persecution, war, and oppression, she tells us. At one point, she writes, during the Vietnam War, General William Westmoreland, the commander of U.S. forces in Vietnam, made a comment that revealed his belief that Asians are not like us, which allowed him to wage war on them. They do not mind dying, the general said, explaining that Asians do not have the same respect for life that we do. And so, again, Salzburg saying, loving-kindness meditations, taking the words of Jesus seriously in those prayers— has a big impact on how we exist on planet Earth. Are we over and against or are we among? The Buddha, she says, taught his students to develop a power of love so strong that the mind becomes like space that cannot be tainted. If someone throws paint at us, it's not the air that's going to change color. Only walls, the barriers to space, can be affected by the paint. Now, that said, she's not saying there is no injustice. Of course there is. And as the Dalai Lama, right, he's, he's the guy who does an hour of loving-kindness meditation every day, a good deal of it for people who are doing tremendous injustice and, you know, evildoing towards the people he is, cares most about and is responsible for. And yet he does, he does loving-kindness meditation on just these terms for them. And that doesn't mean he does not then advocate for the Tibetan people, fight against the Chinese hardliners. He does, but from that stance. And so Salzburg on that spirit says, look, there's an appropriate treatment we need to demand at points without prejudice or fear. But can we do these things without destroying ourselves through anger? Can you imagine a mind state in which there's no bitter condemning judgment of yourself or of other people? A mind that does not see the world in terms of good and bad, right and wrong, good and evil, but only sees suffering and the end of suffering. What would happen, she asks, if we looked at ourselves and at all the different things that we see and didn't judge any of it? And again, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, the same place where Jesus says to pray for our enemies and love our enemies and pray for people who persecute us, Jesus also says, don't judge them. And that's interesting, right? Why is he, I mean, aren't, aren't some people worth judging? Apparently not. Apparently that does not help us in any way. That is not the same as fighting for justice. It's a very different thing. She talks about how important it is to exercise compassion for evildoers. And she says this, a further compassion meditation begins with using the phrase, may you be free of your pain and sorrow, directed towards someone who's causing harm in the world. This is based on understanding that causing harm to others inevitably means creating harm for ourselves, both now and in the future. So may you be free of your pain and sorrow. And then I'm going to close with her look at this thing she calls sympathetic joy, which she says invariably comes up for any of us who kind of give ourselves to loving kindness and loving kindness meditation, we learn about sympathetic joy. And she says it's this. Sympathetic joy is being delighted for the good fortune of people we don't like or are envious of. So somebody we don't like has something good happen to them and we are happy for them. Compassion reminds us that everyone suffers. Since that's true, do we really want some person whom we do not like to experience only more and more suffering? 
Happiness, she says, doesn't go away when we share it with others. It's not a limited commodity that has to somehow be rationed out and conserved really carefully so we don't deplete our supply of it. Sympathetic joy, she says, also has the benefit of eliminating boredom, which I never thought of this. Boredom, she says, is based on a sense of separateness and a turning away that we feel when we experience certain degrees of aversion. When we stop paying attention to the little things in life and the little things in our meditation practice as well, we find ourselves bored. By reconnecting to the little things, we awaken again to a delightful kind of openness. So being able to see what's around us sympathetically, even for people who we don't like, is actually fascinating, makes our life pop. As loving kindness grows, she says, we see that the happiness of others is our happiness. Well, she's obviously got a lot more to say, but I'm going to stop there. What do you think? Are you game to give this a try and see where it gets you? Might loving kindness be the kind of superpower that everything, everywhere, all at once suggests it is? I look forward to talking to you again soon. <laughs>